There is a subtle danger we as evangelicals must be aware of. With all of our emphasis on the Bible, with our commitments to its authority, with our commitment to its inerrancy, that it's without error, with all of our emphasis on the Bible, with our expository sermons, with all the Bibles that we own at home, how many Bibles, how many different copies of the Bible do I have at home? I think you're the same way. With our adult Bible fellowship classes, with our Sunday school classes, with our Bible memory, there is this subtle danger we as evangelicals must be aware of. And it's this. We can develop a certain Bible arrogance. A Bible arrogance. Oh, we know the Bible. We got the Bible down pat in this church. When it comes to the Bible, we're good. Instead, my dear people, without losing our confidence in the Bible, in fact, because of our confidence in the Bible, the Word of God must humble us. We as evangelicals, we as followers of Jesus Christ, we must be humble before it. Because when we come to the Bible, it's not about our thoughts, it's about God's, and God's thoughts are so much higher. Humble when we come to it. Because it is beyond us. Humble when we interpret it. Humble when we teach it. Humble when we preach it. I think there are two ideas, two realities that will help us remain humble. The first one is this. The word of God must humble us, for it is beyond our human ability to understand it. Do you realize that? Look what the Word of God says in 2 Corinthians 2, 14. It'll be up on the screen for you. The natural person, that's who we are in and of ourselves, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The things of the Bible... The things of God are spiritually discerned. And without the Spirit, we can't understand it. Never forget this. Without the Holy Spirit, we would never be able to understand the Bible. Oh, maybe we could read it. Maybe we could even study it and try to put it together. But it would never take root in us. It would never become active. It would never penetrate in. It would never transform our thinking if it wasn't for the Spirit of God. And so I say to you today, if you do understand it, maybe if you're just beginning to understand even just a little bit of it, maybe has God been building this hunger in you for the Word of God? If that's you today, I think that's something to celebrate. Because what's taken place is a a miracle has taken place. 
God's Spirit has come into us. And he's helping us understand the Bible. The psalmist said that over in Psalm 119, verse 18. He pleads to the the Lord, Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. And so we come to the word of God again today. Oh, Lord, open our eyes. Do this miracle in us that we might understand your word. Another reason for us to be humble when we come to the Bible, for it is beyond our human ability to obey it. Listen how the Apostle Paul writes about himself. Over in Romans 7, verse 18, it'll be here on the screen for you to read. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. In and of ourselves, we are not able to obey it. It is only through the gospel, only through the work of Jesus on the cross, only through the power of the Holy Spirit within us that we are able to, first of all, understand the word of God, and then secondly, to obey it, to live it out. How many times have you, how many times have I, in my Bible arrogance, in my Christian arrogance, I come to these things that are important to me. I come to the fruit of the Spirit. I come to the beatitudes that Jesus taught. And in my humanness, I say, well, I've got this down. I've got this covered. Only in the next moment to fail miserably. And right, it doesn't take very much. Maybe just a slow driver in front of me. Or maybe a long line at the grocery store. Something real simple like that. And all of a sudden I see who I am in and of myself. And in my humanness. Oh God, keep us humble in every way. Keep us humble before his word. Today we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. It's John 13, verses 31 to 35. It's words of Jesus in the upper room, said to his disciples on his last night before being crucified. And today I ask two questions. I'd like to answer two questions from this passage. And this passage, like all of God's word, humbles us. And the two questions, one has to do with our understanding. The other has to do with our obedience. If you haven't already, please open your Bibles. The passage is also printed for you on the outline. And let's first, before I get to my questions and the answers that I want to give, let's first move through some of the details of this passage of Scripture. Uh, uh, Just a bit of the context. I think it helps us understand. Look at verse 31. It begins when he had gone out. If you're taking notes, maybe on the outline that I give you, circle the word he. Who, Who is that referring to? Well, this is referring to Judas. If we look up in the passage before, look at verse 21 of John 13. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then, of course, all the discussion around the table there at that last supper. Who's it going to be? Me? Look down in verse 26. 
Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Verse 31, when he had departed, when he had gone out, that's referring to Judas, leaves the scene. And with the departure of Judas, the machinery of the arrest, trial, and execution of Jesus was put into motion. Thus was initiated the series of events that would result in Christ's death. And at the same time result in the redemption, the redemptive work of the gospel. All the others around the table, the others were oblivious. But Jesus saw the coming storm, and instead of avoiding it, he walked straight into it. So the word, verse verse 31, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Would you circle the word now? I think it's important for us to see that. The events that just unfolded, the Last Supper, he says this word, one of you is going to betray me. Uh, He gives the morsel to Judas. Judas gets up and leaves, and all of these things start unfolding. And Jesus says, now. Now is the Son of Man glorified and the Father glorified in him. You know, all along in Jesus' ministry, he kept saying, oh, not yet. My day hasn't come. No, not yet. No, not now. All along, all those years. No, not now, not yet. And then here, he says, now. Now is the Son of God, Son of Man glorified, and the Father glorified in Him. Now. What's He referring to? He's referring to what's about to unfold. His arrest, this mock trial that takes place, and the torture, and the agony, and the execution, His death. Now. Why couldn't it have been some other time in his life? Why not at the baptism, how great baptisms are? The baptism of Jesus, when the Spirit descended in the form of a dove, and God the Father's voice, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Couldn't it have been then when the Son was glorified? Or how about on the Mount of Transfiguration? When the other Moses and Elijah were there, and the way they, they were transfigured, and... It wasn't then. It wasn't that his miracles? In fact, that one of his first miracles, you know, my time hasn't come yet. It was now. As the day unfolded, when he would die. I think it's startling that for both Jesus and God the Father, that they are both glorified by the death, the crucifixion, 
the execution of Jesus. That raises a big question in my mind. More on that in just a few moments. There's one more word that I'd like us to look at in this passage of Scripture to understand what's happening. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Would you circle that word new? A new commandment he gave them, that they would love one another? Isn't that command to love your neighbor as yourself, isn't that as old as the Old Testament? That had been around? What was new about this commandment? That Jesus gave. Well, I think the new, there's a a new target in this. Jesus said, love one another. That special love that we have for each other as believers in Jesus Christ. I think Jesus is giving them a new model. He says, love one another as I have loved you. As Jesus loved. That's how we are to love each other. And we're about to see it. Jesus is giving himself up. Jesus is being self-sacrificing. A new target, a new model. I also think a new goal Jesus gives. And that is in that next verse where it says that others will know that we are followers of Jesus. It is a strong passage of Scripture. I have two questions. The first question is this. How is God the Father glorified by the death of Jesus? How is God the Father glorified by the death of Jesus? I'm a father. I have three incredibly great kids. I can't imagine. But verse 31 says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Kind of an interesting twist of these words, glorify and God and Jesus. And it's in the context of Jesus is just about to enter into this ordeal of being crucified. How is the Father glorified? I suppose you could ask the same question about how is Jesus glorified in this? I think we can kind of see maybe Jesus. We can see the glorification that comes for Jesus, after his, when he dies, and he, he's raised in the resurrection, and then the ascension, and Jesus, and all that he's doing here, he is undoing the effects of the first Adam, right? In the first Adam, we all sinned, and all have died, and here Jesus is undoing all of that, and it's amazing. He's defeating Satan, and Satan's greatest weapon, which is death, and Jesus defeats all of that, and And then, after he's at the right hand of God, Philippians tells us that Jesus is given this new name that is above all other names and that every knee will bow to him. I think we can kind of see maybe a little bit how Jesus is glorified in the crucifixion and what follows. But how is God the Father? How is God the Father glorified? glorified by the death of his son 
I think in our thinking, we, it seems more like a, a necessary evil. It seems like this, this terrible thing that had to happen that God in his unbelievable ability brings about good. This, not something to glory, this, this terrible defeat, this terrible disgrace, watching his son bear the world's sin and die on an agonizing death on the cross, this temporary disaster that we all must just put up with, not something to glorify it. Now, that's not what the scriptures say. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. I have three ways to answer this. First, God is glorified by the complete obedience of his Son. If you go back into the Old Testament, there's that really another unbelievable scene that points to this scene. It's when Abraham was called to and willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Maybe you haven't read that story. It's it's quite amazing. The son of promise. God says he wants him to sacrifice Isaac. And child sacrifice was not something that they did. God said, I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham is willing. Takes his son early one day and they leave. They go up to the mountain. I'm always startled by that phrase. It's recorded when Isaac says, Father, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Good question, innocent question. What was going through Abraham's mind? God will provide. Then the scriptures tell us he binds his son and puts his son on the altar and he's about to sacrifice him. That whole story, it says so much about the character of Isaac trusting his father. It also says so much about the trustworthiness of Abraham. That Isaac could trust him and submit himself to him. God is glorified. God the Father is glorified by the complete obedience of his Son. And particularly when we think about earlier in Jesus' life, at the time of the temptation, when Satan comes to him out in the wilderness, and Satan gives him three opportunities to fulfill what maybe was kind of on his mind, three ways that Jesus could fulfill his mission and not have to go through this awful ordeal. And each time, Jesus refuses. And each time, Jesus uses scripture that speaks about his father about who God the Father is. God is glorified by the complete obedience of his Son. A few, um, a little bit later in this day, this last night over in John 17, 
Jesus is about to give this high priestly prayer, and, and in the midst of it, he says, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then just even a little further, Jesus is about to go out into the garden and he's about to pray and he prays. You recall when he says, Father, all things are possible with you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. God is glorified by the complete obedience of his son. And I say to all of us today, the obedience of God's children always brings him glory. But there's another reason. God is glorified also by the fulfillment of his redemptive plan. It was God the Father's plan. It emerged out of his mercy and his goodness, and his grace. But it was God the Father's plan to sacrifice his son for the salvation of the elect. And it brings him great glory when people are saved. God is glorified by the fulfillment of his redemptive plan. I'd like to bring you back to Isaiah 53. When Isaiah is talking about all of this, in Isaiah 53, verse 6, where he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him. God the Father has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Oh, but there's more. Look at verse 10 there. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of God the Father to crush the Son. The verse goes on. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. God is glorified by the fulfillment of his redemptive plan. There was no other way. God's plan was necessary, and it was fulfilled. And as we sit here today, and as we are thinking back, and as we are are contemplating this part of God's word, believer, your salvation is, brings great glory to God. The fact that you're in Christ today, that the redemptive work of Jesus is alive and active in your life, brings great glory to God. His redemptive plan works. And there's one other reason. How God the Father is glorified. God is glorified by the clear proclamation of his attributes. There at the cross. We dare not miss this. That when Jesus was dying in agony and the crucifixion is happening and unfolding, there is this clear proclamation of God the Father's attributes. 
His power is being declared. The kings and the rulers and the religious leaders of the earth all counseled together against God and his Christ. Satan himself thought he had been victorious. But God defeated all of them through this death and resurrection of Jesus. And it is true what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. The weakness of God is stronger than man. His power is declared. His holiness is declared. Never did God display his hatred for sin more than on the cross. And even in his relationship with his son, as his son bears the weight of the sin of the world, the father looks away and, why have you forsaken me? Because God, in his holiness, cannot look upon sin. His holiness is declared. His faithfulness is declared. He had promised a deliverer would come, and the deliverer came and was willing to go to the cross. His faithfulness, his love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Oh, in the culture of our day, when the world thinks about the death of Jesus on the cross, what, 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 do, you, what do they usually say? Uh, we, we, we heard it again this week in one of the movies we, or something we were watching. Something to the, uh, well, it didn't end well for Jesus. Right? It's easy. To, well, it sure didn't work out well for Jesus. When what this passage of Scripture is saying is on that grim night. Day of his crucifixion and the unfolding of all of those events, the Son was glorified and the Father was glorified. It doesn't take away any of the weight of sin and the pain and the agony and the torture and the sacrifice and the death. It doesn't take away any of that but it just adds on the glory. I think for us today, it, it brings us an, a, a new look at sacrifice. Oh, Lord, we don't understand your ways. Help us by your spirit. The second question that I'd like to ask this morning comes out of this passage of Scripture out of verses 34 and 35. And it's directed to us, particularly here at Westchester. And the question is this, are we loving one another? Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So I ask the question for us, are we loving one another? Now I must confess that in the past when this topic has come up, I, I usually along with this exhortation um, speak about the exceptions, right? I usually say things, oh, we don't, we don't need to be best friends with everyone. You know, it's not, we, don't, we, don't, we can't love everyone the same I know I've said things like that. 
I've said we, we won't like everyone, but maybe we can love one another. I stand before you, and would you please forgive me for those things? And today, let's simply hear this exhortation and ask God's help to obey it. Jesus says to all of us today in this room as brothers and sisters in Jesus, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love? Well, by giving up himself, by self-sacrifice, by self-sacrificing himself. Can I ask the question even of today? Here we are at church today. How much self-sacrificing took place today as we gathered here at Westchester? How much did we sacrifice in in my greeting of you, or our greeting of each other, in the way that we were listening to each other, in our concern for each other, in our approaching of new people, how much self-sacrificing in your giving, in your generosity, and for all of us. Jesus says, love one another. So that's not some, you know, people we don't know. That's us. We are to love one another with a self-sacrificial love. Jesus said, love as I have loved you. How did Jesus love? Jesus loved in such a way as it would bring glory to God and, and, and I say this to myself and to all of us. Do we love each other to bring glory to God? Or do we love each other because it just feels good to do that? It it makes us look good. We love each other. I love other people because it makes me more lovable. Whatever. Do we love because it brings God glory? Do we love because it shows anybody who comes in here? It shows something really different is happening here, and it shows that we are disciples of Jesus. That's why we love each other. We don't love each other because we want to look like really, really nice people. We love each other so that people will know we're followers of Jesus. I want to stand before you as one of your pastors, and I want to encourage you as Westchester. I believe Westchester does love each other. But can we do it even better? Isn't there even more that we can do? Can't we, aren't we willing? Can I speak to two current parts of this discussion? I think all of us in this room, maybe some more than others, all of us in this room might respond to this exhortation this way. This way. It's hard because Christians have wronged me. Christians, other Christians, maybe even Christians in this room have wronged me terribly. The church has messed up. The church has failed me. Christians have so betrayed me, so hurt me, that I can't love the church. 
Is that how Jesus loves the church? I just think of the ways I wronged him this week, the ways I ignored him and dishonored him, yet he continues to love me. I know this is a tall order. I know that it's not an easy thing. And if I could stand before you as right now and if I could apologize to all of you for the ways that Christians have wronged you or the way the church or this church has wronged you because we're fallen, I apologize. But this is what the word of God calls us to. And this is what the gospel will produce in our lives. Oh, I know. There are some that will, are even here. I love Jesus. But I put up with the church. I love Jesus. But I don't even like the church. Let alone love the church. When God calls us to love one another. Oh, I think there's another line of reasoning that happens. And it goes somewhat like this. I am so busy. I'm so busy with my family and my job. I'm so tired and life is so complicated. I can't love the church. Again, I love Jesus but I have nothing left for his church. When Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Or would you listen to over in 1 John? I, I preach this because it's just so important. 1 John 3.14 says this. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It just wouldn't be right if we didn't say it. We know that we have passed from death into life if we love one another. Or in the same book over in chapter 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother his brother in Christ, his brother or sister in Christ, love one another. Again, I am so thankful for the atmosphere of love in our church. And could we even more? Would you evaluate yourself May God's Spirit lead us. Your concern, your faithfulness, your sacrifice, your affection. Just in preparation for our partaking of communion, 
I'm going to ask if everyone would bow your heads, please. I would just like to pray over us, and then we'll transition into communion. But Lord, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, forgive us when we arrogantly think that we fully understand your word and your ways. Forgive us, Lord. Give us a hunger to go deeper. And Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, teach us your truth. Lord, forgive us when we don't think obedience is necessary. Lord, forgive us when we think just being aware of your commands is sufficient and we don't have to obey them. Oh, Father, forgive us. Lord, show us, teach us, empower us by your Spirit that we might love one another more and more. Lord, as your word speaks of the church, Lord, help us to forgive one another. Help us more and more to bear each other's burdens, to accept one another, to build each other up. Lord, help us as we rejoice with one another, as we mourn with one another, as we speak the truth to one another in love. Lord, more and more at Westchester, Lord, may we be known because we're followers of Jesus that we are kind to one another, that we pray for one another, that we bear with each other. Lord, we desire to glorify you by the way we sacrificially love one another. Now, Father, would you guide us, move in us, as we gather around this communion table. Thank you for this reminder. Father, for this ordinance that you've commanded us to do, and to do until Jesus returns. Lord, move in us. And we want to remember. And Father, as we are holding on to the elements and we're going to partake together, Father, may we be struck again by the voluntary self-sacrificing of Jesus. Lord, may we be struck again by your willingness, the willingness of the Father to give up his only begotten Son that we might be saved. Lord, this, these elements remind us of what binds us together. Lord, may our love come from what you've done. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.